This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Very interesting debate we're having for our hot question of the day today. So you may not know this, but every day that there is a sitting of the legislature, the day begins with some kind of a prayer and different MLAs can get up and say a few words. It's non-denominational. It's not any particular religion. It's whatever that MLA would like to do. Well, the BC Humanist Association has researched this. They have kind of broken down and crunched the numbers in terms of how many of them are overtly religious, how many of them are actually non-denominational. And they're saying that the prayers are overwhelmingly religious and that they think they need to be done away with. So we're asking you for our hot question of the day. Do you think the daily prayer at the BC legislature should be scrapped? Do you say yes, it's inappropriate, or no, what's the problem? So weigh in with your thoughts. Simi Sarah 980 or at CKNW. The arguments made on this are really interesting, and I think you'd probably find them a bit surprising too. So we're going to hear from Ian Bushfield a little bit later on the show uh, when it comes to this decision. My argument was kind of, well, if it's comforting and they're non-denominational and anybody can say what they want, then what's the problem? But you can weigh in, use our buzz line as well, 604-331-BUZZ, or drop me an email, Simi at CKNW. Well, another day of talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline for a very significant reason. The Federal Court of Appeal in about half an hour will release a decision to decide whether or not a new set of legal challenges to that pipeline project can actually move forward or not. Now, the federal government twice now has approved a plan to twin the existing pipeline from Alberta to the B.C. coast. Remember, about a year or so ago, the Federal Court of Appeal tore up the original approval, said that there was an insufficient environmental review, inadequate consultations, made them do it all over again. The Trudeau Liberals then said that they fixed those problems. They approved the expansion a second time in June. Environmental groups say that there still hasn't been enough done. So how significant could this decision today probably be? Well, let's talk to Keith Baldry about that. The Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief joins us now. Good morning, Keith. Good morning, Simi. So I wouldn't ask you to predict, predict. <laughs> but how, how big of a decision is this today in terms of deciding the future of this pipeline? Oh, I think it's, it's pretty major. If, uh, if the Federal Court of Appeal rules there's been adequate consultation and says that's it, um, then that's it, unless someone wants to try to get the Supreme Court of Canada to, to hear this. But um, a couple of things at play here. Uh, Frank Iacobucci is the former justice on the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, he attached his legal opinion to, uh, to the federal government's view that uh, there had been adequate consultation. So you've got a senior judge, justice, already weighing in, and that may have some impact on how the judges view this. Uh, on the other hand, the Federal Court of Appeal was the one court that gave uh, that sided with uh, First Nations, that there had not been adequate consultation when uh, other courts had, had seen otherwise. So, I mean, you could look at this either way. But if, if the Federal Court of Appeal says that's it, that's a major blow to the opponents of, of the pipeline. But if it says any number of these, I think there's 12 legal challenges from various First Nations and environmental organizations, if they can go ahead to be heard whether or not uh, there was consultation or not, or whether or not from the environmental uh, perspective that there's not adequate uh, uh, safety, uh, adequate protections for endangered marine species, particularly orcas. Uh, That's another um, potential setback to the pipeline project. Keep in mind, though, even if these protests go ahead, construction can still continue. 
Uh, and one of the parallels, I think, to, be, to look at here, Simi, is the Site C Dam. The Site C Dam was the su- subject of numerous yeah. uh, court challenges. And it's, at one point, several points, the Federal Court of Appeals said, okay, that's enough. You know, we've heard enough here. There has been a consultation. Uh, now, I think there was consultation over a longer period of time of, on BC Hydro's part on the Site C Dam. Nevertheless, the Court of Appeal has waded into this very issue before and sided with the project, saying there had been adequate consultation in Site C and he could still go ahead. And keep in mind, there's still an ongoing court challenge to Site C from the West Moberly ban, yet construction will continue. And in fact, the river will be diverted, the dam all but complete before the court hearings actually heard. So I think that's an interesting parallel to keep in mind of in, in today's, uh, today's ruling. Right. Even if the challenges are allowed to go ahead, that doesn't mean the pipeline s- suddenly stops being built. Yeah, I guess if you're on the government side, you're hoping that two rounds of court-ordered consultation here should be sufficient. You would think that. And again, I think Iacobucci's uh, opinion here is going to carry some weight at the federal level because he's the senior justice to the Court of Appeal judges. Uh, and again, the Court of Appeal has signaled in the past they, they are willing to say enough is enough when it comes to consultation and things being dragged out. Now, do they think that there was, you know, I think there were longer period of time on Site C. Hydro spent a number of years consulting with First Nations and trying to appease their interests, longer than I think Trans Mountain and the federal government did. But perhaps the Court of Appeals says, look, you know, a couple years is enough. And it's going to be a fascinating decision one way or another about 20 minutes from now. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so how far along is this project, though? I know that they're, they've got shovels in the ground. They are moving forward. Well, they've got a lot of pipe delivered to places like Kamloops. There's a huge, uh, uh, near the rail yard there in Kamloops, uh, just filled with pipe uh, ready to be laid uh, in the surrounding area there. There is uh, construction beginning in the Burnaby uh, Terminal, the West Ridge Marine Terminal, where, the, where it's actually loaded, and on the, con- on the line between uh, in Alberta between Edson and Edmonds. But I still think we're at the very beginning of, uh, of the construction schedule. I don't think there's been a lot of work done on, uh, so well, there hasn't been a lot of work done yet on the actual route and laying the pipe in the ground, but there's a lot of prep work has been done. There's been a lot of site uh, site work been done. A lot of surveys have been done. So, I mean, it's ready to go for actually digging into the ground and laying the pipe. And and uh, they still think they can stick to their construction schedule. And today's uh, court ruling won't necessarily affect that. But down the road, if they are allowed to hear these court challenges and then the Court of Appeals says six months from now, you know what? You're right. There hasn't been adequate consultation. This whole thing goes off the rails very quickly. Right. So that's my question. What are the options for whatever side? If this, if this doesn't go the government's way, what are their options? If it doesn't go the opposition's way, what are their options after this? Well, I think there's got to be some out to, uh, to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, but there's no guarantee that the Supreme Court of Canada would necessarily hear the appeal. That's, that's not a fait accompli. Uh, so there's always an appeal route, one assumes. Uh, if, uh, if, there, if the challenges are said no, then I think you're going to back to seeing the massive amount of civil disobedience that will accompany some of these construction sites, notably in the urban areas in around the Burnaby Terminal, where we've seen mass arrests in the past. I don't think that's going to go away no matter what the court decision is today. I still think uh, that people are gearing up for uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of civil disobedience, that, no matter what the court decision is. But after that, uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen for the next two years as construction continues. In, in sort of much more remote places throughout BC and, and Alberta. It's, uh, again, lacking a, a court ruling that stand down. I think it's going to be hard to actually stop the project. Right. And what is the rule of the BC, the role of the BC government in all of this? It's a very, you know, they're, they're continuing to challenge the, the rule of the law that who determines what flows through that pipeline. They've already lost in the Court of Appeal. 
um, that uh, this is not something that the BC government has jurisdiction over. But you know, they have the BC government has a relatively minor court challenge, somewhat abstract uh, argument here in court. Other than that, they're really not doing much. As John Horgan has pointed out many times in the past, uh, even though he never likes to talk about this subject, uh, they've approved every permit that uh, that has been in front of them after it goes through a process. Hundreds of permits have been approved by the B.C. government to allow the project to proceed. There's still others that are outstanding, but th- no permit has actually been turned down. So the government, the B.C. government is very much an active participant in ensuring the pipeline gets built. There are, they acknowledge they have no legal standing to stop the construction of the pipeline. Where they're arguing is what can flow through that pipeline. The BC government should have the right to determine what's in there, and that it cannot include bitumen. So far, they've lost that in court, and few legal observers give them much of a chance of winning that, that uh, court challenge, ultimately, if it goes to higher courts. Right. So for today, they're not involved in, in this case no. today. No. It's, uh, they have... Uh, um, sought intervener status on some of these challenges, but as a direct participant, no, these are mostly indigenous and environmental groups on a number of uh, number of cases with a number of different arguments, either lacking consultation with First Nations, um, trampling on First Nations treaty rights uh, and, and land claims, and again, not having adequate protection for endangered marine species. Uh, so it's, it's, it's sort of a, a dual argument. One is the pipeline argument, yeah. and the other one is the tanker argument. And environment uh, groups have champion the tanker argument that it's not adequate to safety uh, standards and First Nations have championed the uh, Indigenous rights, lack of consultation and the fact that it is their land. All right, so I guess we'll let you go get ready for this. It's going to yep. be coming down soon. Thanks, Keith. Minutes. Okay, take care. Okay, bye. That's Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. He's right. about 15 minutes or so. The Federal Court of Appeal is expected to announce uh, online its very significant decision in regards to the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. We don't want a no-deal scenario, uh, Mr. Speaker, and the way to avoid it is not to vote for the absurd surrender bill that is before uh, the House today and let the government get on, get on and negotiate a deal, because that is what we want to do. Yeah, I think at this point over in the UK, the question is, what government? That is Prime Minister Boris Johnson not having a good go of it in the last couple of days. In fact, it looks disastrous. Looks like everything is falling down over there. And you've probably seen this story popping around, all the headlines everywhere. It's on social media. And you may wonder, what is going on? It is complicated, you're right, but it's also very significant, I think, to anybody who votes in a parliamentary democracy process, which we do. And we have an election coming up. So how did they get themselves in this? And is Boris Johnson about to make history as one of the shortest tenured prime ministers ever in the history of the United Kingdom? Let's find out. Gavin Riley joins us, political correspondent for Virgin Media Television in Ireland. Gavin, thanks for being back with us. No problem, sir. Good afternoon to you. What is going on with Boris Johnson? Uh, if only it was as easy to offer a quick uh, answer as it is a quick question like that. Uh, what is going on is that as as we speak at this very moment, uh, the House of Commons is voting on the final stage of whether to basically pass a law which forces Boris Johnson, whether he likes it or not, to go and seek a three-month delay to Brexit. Now, this is in itself already, to some degree, sort of unprecedented because we had a whole batch of procedural votes yesterday which saw Boris Johnson lose control of what is even on the agenda of Parliament. This would be somewhat similar to um, to uh, Justin Trudeau no longer having control of what laws are discussed 
uh, in Parliament in Ottawa. It, it's that significant that he literally has no control of what is being discussed or whether he can stop it in any way. Uh, so what's going to happen in the next few minutes is that we are likely to hear that that law has passed and that it will therefore be uh, binding on him by the House of Commons that he will have to go to Brussels in a couple of weeks' time and ask for more time. Yeah. Now, the only caveat to that is that it still has to go through the House of Lords, uh, but that's probably going to happen in the next couple of days. You have to bear in mind, obviously, though, that when Boris Johnson was elected Prime Minister only about six weeks ago, he was elected on the specific policy goal of delivering Brexit on the 31st of October, deal or no yeah. deal. So the situation where a prime minister was elected specifically to achieve that policy, and now he is being told by his own parliament, legally bound to pursue a different policy, which is part of the reason why he says maybe the time is right to simply go back and hold another general election. But that is something he also said that he wouldn't do. He also said that he would not call an election. (laughs) It's something that he said he wouldn't do on Monday, and it's something that he said he wouldn't do yesterday, but it's something that he did say he wanted to do earlier today, uh, which (laughs) might give you something of an indication of uh, just how quickly things are changing when when you deliver all of this. Uh, Basically, Boris Johnson had said that he didn't want to be forced to call an election. It wasn't something that he would personally like to spend his time doing. Uh, But in fairness to him, he is probably now at a point where it's the only way to get around this sort of uh, impasse because you have a situation where, as I said, a prime minister was elected specifically on the policy of getting out of the European Union at Halloween. And now you have a parliament that says, no, we're not going to let you do that because there's going to be too much chaos if you leave without any sort of a a safety net for various different arrangements. So he reckons the only way you can get around that is by saying, well, if this parliament won't let me leave on Halloween, then maybe I might go looking for another parliament that will, which is why he's considering calling an election. Are we also, Gavin, here watching the implosion of the Conservative Party, the party of Margaret Thatcher and David Cameron and John Major? It feels a little bit like that. I suppose you don't want to be too premature about pronouncing the death knell of all of these things. But it, it was very striking last night that we think we had the biggest single uh, push, the, the elimination of um, MPs from the Conservative Party that we've ever had uh, before. That we've, um, you know, you've, you've never seen a situation where you would have 21 senior lawmakers from one party all uh, literally just expelled from the party overnight because they had voted against the government. I mean, this, this wasn't even a situation where it was a confidence motion. These guys weren't voting to bring down their own government. But Boris Johnson saw it as such an affront that they would uh, go against government policy on this, that they've all been kicked out. You have people like uh, Kenneth Clark, who was a long-standing Chancellor of the Exchequer back in the 1990s, people like Philip Halland, who was the Chancellor up, up until only about six weeks ago, and who once upon a time was actually seen as an arch-Eurosceptic. He was seen as being more anti-EU than most uh, Conservative MPs. He's now been eliminated from the party because he doesn't want a no-deal Brexit. You also have the very symbolic figure of a guy called Nicholas Soames, who won't mean very much to very many people, but if you were to look at him, you would see the family likeness already. He is the grandson of of Winston Churchill, who, of course, is Boris Johnson's idol, a man he's written a biography of. He has been kicked out of the party that his his grandfather led with such distinction uh, because the current Prime Minister doesn't like his policy on Europe. Is some of this settling political scores, Gavin? Like Boris Johnson for a long time has been quite a rabble rouser and it just seems to me a bit like some of that is coming home to roost. It does seem a little bit like that as well. And part of that is, again, because of the heavy-handed tactics of expelling those 21 people who rebelled last night. Again, it is worth bearing in mind that a lot of the people who are now in Boris Johnson's cabinet are people who, like him, are Eurosceptic and who want to get out of the European Union. But they are people who voted against Theresa May time and time again because they thought her policies were too pro-EU or that it wasn't quite Brexit enough. So you have a situation where so many of those people voted against the last prime minister time after time after time. Now, the current prime minister has had people vote against him once. 
and he's kicked them out of the party for good and he's banning them from ever being able to run uh, as Conservative candidates in the future. You, you would be forgiven for thinking that he's, he's settling old scores, but perhaps he's maybe trying to show himself as a little bit of a disciplinarian who isn't going to be pushed around by Brussels or by his own backbenchers, that when he says he's going to pursue a policy, that he's going to pursue it come what may, and that he will, you know, simply bulldoze through the people who stand in his way. How frustrated are the people in the UK right now, though? Because they're essentially watching these politicians fight, 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 fight. And if it were me, if it were my country, I'd feel like, who's in control here? Who's in charge? What is happening? Yeah, the most frustrating thing about it is that people on both camps would be frustrated that you would have those who want there to be either some sort of a pragmatic Brexit or indeed no Brexit at all, who would be frustrated that Boris Johnson seems to be determined to plough on ahead with this policy no matter how many times he keeps getting defeated. And then, of course, on the other side, you have uh, the Brexiteers who don't see what's happening as being Brexit enough, that they want to have this completely clean break. They want to lose all of their dependency on Brussels, even if it does mean a lot of disruption to their lives for the, the first couple of weeks or months or even a few years. And then, of course, in the middle ground, you have those who are not really terribly invested either way and who just want this whole thing to be gotten rid of. You know, when David yeah. Cameron called this election, he called it because he thought, right, we're going to win this vote and all of the, the generations of anti-European sentiment in my party will just have to shut up and go away. Never thought that it would actually happen, but he never thought that three years and three months later that we would still be debating how exactly to pursue Brexit or indeed whether Brexit should actually happen at all. Because the big question is, if the general election results in a pro-European Union government being formed, uh, could they just abandon Brexit or could they go back to the drawing board and start another two-year set of talks all over again? Who knows? Uh, Yeah, who knows? Not even the Prime Minister knows at this point. I have to tell you, watching from our vantage point over here in North America, we can't believe what we see happening in this place where really parliamentary democracy got its start. Yeah, and and that's what's been so striking about the last couple of weeks, because bear in mind that this all kicked off, and the reason why Boris Johnson is now facing such a rebellion is because he announced this five-week prorogation, this suspension of Parliament. And of course, it's so symbolic because Westminster is the mother of Parliament. So many countries like my own in Ireland, like your own in Canada, have inherited that sort of parliamentary procedure from Westminster, and it's very symbolic to see the mother of Parliament literally being shut down for five weeks. So really then the question is, how do the opponents of Brexit use that Parliament to try and uh, or use the time that's available to them before the shutdown to try and, and achieve their policies as best they can? And that's why suddenly what Boris Johnson should have been facing into a very soft first week uh, when Parliament is coming back for the first time since his election, that instead he's facing this rebellion where he's facing defeat after defeat after defeat because he has effectively goaded his opposition into saying, you've only got this week to work with, you know, you know have, do your best, right. say, have at it. And they've turned around and said, "Okay, well, we're just going to keep beating you time and time again until we get what we want. Wow. Okay, it is unbelievable to watch. Uh, Gavin, thank you so much for joining us. No no problem, Simi. Take care. That is Gavin Riley, political correspondent for Virgin Media Television in Ireland, following along with what is happening in the UK. Big story is one that we have been following and talking about, and that has to do with the Federal Court of Appeals decision this morning on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. What they allowed is six of 12 applications to proceed uh, when trying to stop that particular project. However, uh, it's a very kind of narrow scope and time frame that they're looking at. They can only use arguments from August to June, so August of last year to June of this year when the second approval was given, uh, and it kind of limits how fast this is all going to happen as well, set out on an expedited schedule. So what does all of this mean? Well, there were 12 groups, as we mentioned, who had applied to move forward. One of those groups was EcoJustice, but their, their uh, application was denied. There, it was not allowed to proceed. 
seat. But let's get some reaction to this. Uh, joining us is Margot Venton, lawyer with the group EcoJustice. Margot, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. What did you think of that decision today? Well, obviously, we're extremely disappointed with the court's decision, um, in particular because it, it, it appears to endorse the very um, significant impacts that the project will have on the endangered southern resident killer whale, um, which we, we maintain are actually unlawful. So you don't see allowing six of 12 of them to proceed as a win? Well, obviously, we are. Um, we congratulate those uh, friends who have been uh, the indigenous groups who will be going forward with their challenge. Um, our concern is that the courts really narrowed what the what will be heard at this appeal and effectively decided um, not just that we won't be there to raise issues, but that no one will be able to raise the issues of the um, potentially unlawful violation of Canadian environmental law, uh, even in the context of those cases that go forward. And that's a real concern. So then what happens next? Is this the end of the line for, for EcoJustice's push on this? Um, well, EcoJustice's application is actually made on behalf of two other conservation organizations, Raincoast um, Conservation Foundation and the Living Ocean Society. And we are have been talking with them today and we are considering our options. But obviously on the table is appealing to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is something we are thinking about right now. Okay. So what would the process be like for that? Do you know? Well, we would need to file an application with the Supreme Court of Canada to basically ask them to review the Court of Appeals decision. Okay. And do you know what the timeline for that? Because one of the striking things I thought was interesting about today's decision was the timeline that is being set out here. The court is saying this needs to be done fairly quickly. Yep, certainly. And and certainly, I think there there is obviously an urgency to this issue. Um, And uh, we would ask... Uh, if we were to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, we would, we would, I imagine, ask that that appeal be heard also as quickly as possible. We wouldn't control the timeline for the Supreme Court, and I, I think we technically have 60 days to seek leave. Um, but yes, the, okay. this is all moving very quickly. So of the six that are allowed to proceed then, Margot, do any of those come close to dealing with the issues that EcoJustice wanted to deal with in their application? Um, well, I mean, in some respects, yes, in the sense that um, the the significant adverse effects, like the, the court, the National Energy Board found that there would be significant adverse impacts on killer whales if the project went forward and also Aboriginal use of killer whales or the, the, the fact that the killer whales are, are such an integral part of the culture of many First Nations on the coast. Um, so when it comes to consultation, that was something they, that, that First Nations would have been discussing. But the, the question of whether Canadian law, like whether the Species at Risk Act, protects, um, protects endangered species like the killer whale from projects that would push them further towards extinction and possibly lead to their extinction, that's an issue that won't be on the table um, in this appeal. And we say that is actually a, a very important legal question that has yet to be decided in Canada and really um, and really should have been heard. Yeah, do you, are you concerned then that this sets some kind of precedent in that argument? Um, in some ways, it, it still, I mean, I think really what it does is leaves the question unanswered. Um, but for this species 
Time is obviously running out. We, we unfortunately have seen over the summer three more whales um, confirmed dead from the southern resident population. It's really, really clear those deaths confirm what the what the National Energy Board said and what the Cabinet knew when they approved this project, which is the current conditions in the Salish Sea are not adequate to maintain that population. This project will um, make those conditions worse. And um, so whether or not this is, you know, whether or not the decision is answered another day for another species won't help the killer whales. They need a decision of the court now. Okay. And so you mentioned that a number of things will be on the table. Do you know how quickly a decision will be made about what the next steps are? Um, I don't, I didn't see information in uh, the decision about um, when the, uh, like when the actual case that cases are going forward will actually be heard. I don't think we know that yet. All right. So still some time to decide. Margo, thank you for your time on this. Thank you for your interest in this issue. This is Margo Venton. That is the lawyer with the group EcoJustice. Let's get you an update now on the situation in Surrey. This has been an ongoing question for a long time now when it comes to the transition to the Surrey Police Department. How are you going to get people to join, leave their pensions behind and start all over again? That question has now been decided. Let's go to Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown, who joins us now. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simeon. This has been a nagging, burning question for members of the Surrey RCMP, especially the senior members for the last several months. What happens to their pension if they do transfer over to a civic police force? Well, we finally got the answer today, and uh, it has been many months in the making. Uh, As I say, it's been a long-standing question, what would happen? After months of talks now, the city of Surrey releasing a news release today saying that a pension portability agreement has been reached, and it means that the RCMP officers who join a Surrey Police Department can take their pensions with them, and that pension plan with the RCMP will be rolled over into the city of Surrey's pension plan. And as I say, this was a key concern for many months. But what's interesting, the mayor, I was looking at my stories going back over the months, uh, Simi, the mayor said back in early May that this would be a done deal. He was confident, but not a lot of Surrey RCMP RCMP members were confident that this deal would get done. So now that it has been done, now that it's been secured, Mm -hmm. I guess the question to the members is, okay, uh, does this change your plans, whether you're going to move over to a civic force or maybe look to join another RCMP detachment somewhere else, either, you know, in the lower mainland or somewhere else in the country? Who knows? Yeah, Um, that's that's a good question. Like, is this apply only if they're transferring to the new Surrey police force or can they take it anywhere? Well, you know, and that's a question a number of Mounties, Surrey RCMP Mounties, have been texting me today. They're asking me uh, whether this agreement announced by the city will apply to Mounties from other detachments outside of Surrey, whether that applies to them. I don't have the answer right now. So I have reached out to the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, for comment. Uh, I put in a request to his office more than two hours ago. I haven't heard back. Uh, but, yeah, there's, there's a number of questions that we would like answered. And, and you know what's interesting, too, Simi? I look back in my notes again, and I, and I found that Richmond City Council, of course, looked into setting up a municipal police force back in the year 2015. But it was determined that the RCMP offers would not be able, officers, pardon me, would not be able to transfer their pensions. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, now, why? What happened? What happen? changed? 
and now Surrey can? I don't know. And is that maybe the reason why uh, Richmond RCMP did not change over to a civic force? I would dare say that would be one of the key reasons. Right. Um, I don't know what happened there and what's happening here and what has changed over the years. But anyways, uh, it is good news for a lot of officers who were who were worried about their pensions. And I, as I say, more of the senior members, those with 10 or more years of service, they were mainly the ones who were concerned because, of course, if they move to a civic force, what happens to that pension plan that they've built up all, over all those years? So, so This is uh, a big you know, one, yeah. That really signifies how big this is because, I mean, over the years, I remember when this last Surrey RCMP contract was negotiated how many years ago when it was Surrey Mayor Diane Watts, Right. And once again, pensions were one of the big issues. It always seemed like this huge obstacle, and yet here it was kind of very quickly overcome. Well, I wouldn't use the word quickly necessarily. I mean, this has been in the works and in negotiation for months. I mean, this issue came came up uh, as soon as the mayor floated the idea about moving over to a, a civic force, and it has taken months to hammer out this agreement. It has. Uh, so at least it's some good news to pass along because obviously, as you say, this is one of the stumbling blocks. And the mayor has always said he thinks, he believes, uh, based on, he says, conversations with RCMP officers that roughly 60% of Surrey RCMP members plan to trans- o- transfer over to a civic force. So now that this pension agreement has been cleared, does that mean more plan to transfer over? Who knows? We don't know. Uh, Two things. I wonder how the mayor of Richmond feels in light of what you said, pointed out there about (laughs) how Malcolm Brody feels about, wait a minute, how come we couldn't do this and now it's getting done? Uh, And also, I wonder if the fact that there's an upcoming election, you know, federal election, lots of seats in Surrey, the federal liberals would like to win those, how much of a role, you know, that lever may have played. Yeah, and you bring up a very good point. And I think some of this is political too in nature. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you, you can't ignore that part of it. Absolutely. But how much of it was involved? I mean, I don't know at this point in time, and I'd love to hear from the mayor, maybe some city councillors. How did this deal get done? How long did it take? Uh, was it difficult? Uh, why couldn't it get done in Richmond and it can get done yeah. for the city of Surrey? So still lots of unanswered questions. Love to hear from the mayor just to sort of put it out there, clear the air. So hopefully we will hear from him shortly and we'll have it on the news this afternoon. Yeah, that would be good to hear. So then do you think that recruitment could start soon, Janet? Well, recruitment, according to the plan that was put from the city over to Victoria, was calling for recruitment to be happening right now, actually. So we're running a little behind. Initially, the plans were for a civic force to be up and running uh, in the summer of 2020. And we heard, uh, you know, in recent weeks, the mayor saying now it's going to be about March 2021. Uh, which isn't that far off from the original schedule. But uh, in terms of recruitment, yeah, I think this this is a game changer for sure because we've always heard that a lot of members who work, for instance, in Vancouver live in Surrey because yeah. it's, 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 it's... And why would costly. they give up pensions and things, right? right. So, so now that we know that, you know, it's maybe transferable. Are we going to have more members maybe from Vancouver looking to work in Surrey or other, you know, detachments around? I think this is really a game changer and it changes everything. Absolutely. But as I say, there are still some unanswered questions as to whether Mounties from other detachments outside of Surrey 
uh, will be given the same deal. I would assume so, but I, I can't say so, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and then you wonder, does the RCMP have enough people to uh, recruit to fill all these roles that they're needing at the other detachments, right, that are still RCMP? Question, you know, yeah. uh, we've heard a lot about that too, about poaching from other detachments and, and how many officers uh, the Justice Institute in Westminster can churn out uh, every year. We're, we're hearing that they can't meet that demand already. Yeah. So, yeah, it, there's lots of unanswered questions going forward. Of course, Wally Opal now sort of taking the reins on this going forward, Simi. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's got a lot on his plate, that's for sure. <laughs> so true. Thanks for that, Janet. You're welcome, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown with uh, some very big news for the Surrey Police Department. I asked the member for Shushwap to lead this house in prayer. That's it right there. Lead the House in prayer. That is Speaker of the Legislature, Daryl Plekis. And when the legislature is in session, that is how he begins the proceedings every day with an invitation to prayer. Not necessarily one particular religion. It is non-denominational. So the person can say whatever they want, but it's the issue of prayer that has the BC Humanist Association calling on members of the public to write to their MLA. They say this practice is outdated and doesn't reflect uh, society's values in 2019. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this as well. Here, here's one of the kinds of prayers that they are objecting to. Most gracious God, we humbly beseech thee to behold with thy blessing our country and the peoples of the Commonwealth. We pray especially for this province, for the Lieutenant Governor, and for the Legislative Assembly at this time assembled, that all things may be so ordered and settled by their endeavors upon the best and surest foundations, that peace and happiness, truth and justice, religion and piety may be established among us for all generations. Amen. Now I can't unhear the fact that that person said Lieutenant Governor and not Lieutenant Governor, like one of our callers pointed out earlier. Yeah, that was a faux pas. Uh, But also, do you have an issue with the way that was phrased? Well, just before the show started today, I had a chance to speak to Ian Bushfield. He's the executive director of the BC Humanist Association, and he talked to us about why they are looking to get rid of these prayers. Well, Ian, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this. No problem. Thanks for having me on. What is it that the humanists are looking for here? We're asking MLAs, members of our legislature, to consider changing the rules. Right now, they begin every day sitting with a prayer given by a different MLA, and we think that it's time for reform. It's 2019. These don't really reflect the diversity and secularity of British Columbia. But a lot of them are non-denominational, right? They're not all of a religion. We're about to release a thorough analysis of 15 years worth of these prayers. And it's fascinating because it's really hard to suss out what is a religious prayer and which aren't. We see a lot of use of the word God, a lot of deities are thrown around. We can't necessarily say those are Christian prayers, but when we can identify the religion, it's usually a Christian prayer. They talk about Jesus, they talk about Lords. And a majority of the prayers that are being said, an overwhelming majority, are religious in some way. They refer to a deity. And for a growing number of British Columbians who don't believe in a god, it's isolating right. to have that used. But is there, I guess my question, is there spirituality attached to these in? If, if, if there's no specific religion in some of these, is it just a general you know, thanks, you know, a thanksgiving, a grateful prayer? Some of them are. Some encourage legislators to think about their duties. Others go in a weird direction. We found a few random ones 
like MLA Kevin Kruger from Kamloops back in the day, used a couple of his prayers to hope that the Health Employees Union or the BCTF in two different cases would come to the, quote, right decision on a contract negotiation that was coming up. Another MLA, Norm Letnick, at one point thanked Canadians for a shipbuilding contract. And so some weird partisan things come up in these as well, which I think most MLAs would assume cross the line. But is it harmful? If it's just something that makes people feel good at the beginning of the workday, like, is it harmful? We think it's a, not a, the best use of time. I think there's better ways that we could be more inclusive as a country or as a province. And for some people in that chamber, MLAs themselves have told us, we don't appreciate this practice. We want to see it reformed or changed. You said you've tracked them for 15 years or so. Yeah, so videos are online and we've managed to look at those. I'm wondering if you noticed any change during that 15 years. Like, was there a difference, say, in the last five years versus 15 years ago? Yeah, we're going to have a lot of that data in our report when it comes out. But one of the ones I wanted to talk about right now, actually, and thanks for bringing that up without prompting, is... (laughs) Didn't realize I was, but In the 2005 to 2009 legislature, when it... We have stayed a little bit older than that, but then it was almost all BC Liberals, so it's a bit That was a very dominant (laughs) BC Liberal chamber, yes. But in 2005 to 2009, 55% of members gave a prayer. Different ones stood up. Since the 2017 election, only 27% have stood up. So it's fewer and fewer voices are actually wanting to use this. So even among MLAs themselves, fewer want to exercise this right. If that's the case, then why not just let it die a natural death? If, if, if that's the way things are going, it's clearly gla- gradually going to get that way anyway. Maybe we're just trying to rush the process at this point. Right. I guess my problem with this is, Ian, is that I think sometimes people just derive comfort from it. Do you know what I mean? Like, And if they get up and say a few words and that makes them feel comforted, then, then what's wrong with that? I think there's room for conversation about reform and different ways to make it more inclusive and reflective. I know we have a government that's very committed in words to reconciliation, perhaps looking at a territorial acknowledgement and reflection Mm -hmm. might be a good opportunity. There's other ways we can do this that doesn't necessarily divide us along religious lines, but maybe calls us all to think about or calls all legislators to think about their duty to the province. Let's hear one of these. Let's hear one of the um, more non-denominational, you know, quote-unquote prayers. I remind each and every one of us of the responsibility we have to celebrate our diversity. We can fulfill our responsibility to be of service to our citizens of many faiths, cultures, sexualities, and genders. Let us renew our obligation to meet that expectation with a new commitment to break down the walls that divide us, to speak of tolerance, acceptance, and respect. Okay, that's an example of of one of the, you know, quote-unquote prayers that happen now. What's the problem with that? I think it still comes from a place that is steeped in what we've called Christian supremacy. The idea of starting an event with a prayer is not universal to all cultures and all humanity. And so we're kind of shoehorning values that I share. I don't disagree with any words that we're saying that are said in that speech. But the practice itself is still preferential seeing a certain worldview that's been dominant in this country and province and that doesn't reflect the diversity that exists historically or even now. But as you acknowledge yourself, it's changing regardless, right? Like it's, it's going the way of, as we say, the dodo bird. Well, then I think it's up to MLAs to have the conversation about how can we reform this so instead of calling it a prayer, maybe it's a reflection or a moment to 
look an invocation is what other places have used. You know what? That's not a bad idea. Like that, I seem like I can get behind. Uh, is that what has happened elsewhere? We know that in the 1970s, when the Parti Québécois was first elected in Quebec during the Silent Revolution, one of the first things they did was actually end the process of prayers there, and they replaced it with a moment of reflection. So it's been a silent reflection since then. Yeah, but they still have a cross that hangs in the National Assembly. They did take that down a couple weeks ago. But yeah, just recently. (laughs) So I mean, that's a bit hypocritical to quote Quebec on that one. I'm not disagreeing with you there. Uh, So changing, you think, what it's called might be more helpful. It would definitely be a step forward. Right. Okay. So you can't, it can't be forced to be done through the courts, right? Because this is a legislative assembly. It's outside of kind of the court's purview. It's most likely true. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has never ruled on this question in the Saguenay question debate, which was about municipal prayers. They said, we're not going to really touch the parliament question because it's not before us. There are some Ontario Court of Appeal rulings that say parliamentary privilege does cover it, but there's one or two justices who've said maybe it's worth inquiring a bit more into that. Okay. So then you're just hoping that by uh, having a letter writing campaign, that that might just bring attention to this? Yeah. And we think given the fact that three quarters of MLAs in the current legislature aren't doing the prayers, that the majority is already on side with reforming this to be a more useful practice for MLAs. All right. So then if people are listening to this, Ian, and think, yeah, I could get on board with that, and I'm sure some people are. Uh, where can they get more information? And go to our website at bchumanist.ca slash endprayers, and there you can use the form letter to either send the default template or you can edit it if you don't agree with our exact arguments. All right. Thank you very much. No problem. That's Ian Bushfield, the executive director of the BC Humanist Association. narcissist, then that song and this next segment actually is about you. We're going to find out why that is. Claire Newell is... Claire Newell. I did this yesterday. <laughs> Claire Allen is with us. I called Claire Newell Claire Allen yesterday. The Claire's. I just Very said confusing. <laughs> Claire Allen is with us now to talk about narcissists. Claire, what got you started on this today? I find the topic of narcissism to be very fascinating because Agreed. I think we all know somebody, one, two, maybe three, maybe a whole bunch of people in our lives that are narcissists. You're thinking of people in particular. Yes. Right? yes. <laughs> we, I think that we either they might just have narcissistic personality traits or maybe they're full-blown narcissists, you know, being diagnosed as being a narcissist. What does that mean? Well, so narcissism is the pursuit of gratification from vanity or egotistic uh, admiration of one's idealized self-image and attributes. This includes self-flattery, perfectionism, and arrogance. So the term semi originated from Greek mythology where a young narcissist fell in love with his own image reflected in a pool of water. This is the type of person who relates everything back to themselves. Yes. So if you say, I oh, had a really bad day today, they go, yeah, well, let me let tell you about my mine. day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That person. Yes. And also just has an inflated sel- sense of self, like maybe is not critical of oneself at all. And that's actually what this study that we're about to learn uh, about 
talked what they aimed to find out about, which I thought was fascinating. So this new study from the University of Waterloo examines how narcissistic personality traits impact critical and reflective thinking. Now, as I said, I find the study to be super fascinating because it actually examines the inner working of a brain of the brain of someone who has narcissistic personality traits. Like what lights up and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. Like why, why, why they behave the way they do. They do outwardly. What goes on inside? Because usually we've just looked at how narcissistic behavior impacts other people. So I caught up with Shane Luttrell. He is the lead author of the study, and he's a cognitive PhD student at the University of Waterloo. And so the first thing he told me, which I found very interesting because I had never heard this before, is that there are actually two types of narcissism. A lot of people might be surprised that there's, uh, at least in the research literature, there's two different types of narcissism. We have what we call grandiose narcissists and we have vulnerable narcissists. And grandiose are kind of what people typically think of when they think of a uh, a narcissist. You know, somebody that feels more entitled, they feel superior to others, uh, they might brag a lot and tend to have uh, much higher self-esteem. Um, uh, some, in some cases, they tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Um, and then you have vulnerable narcissists, which um, those aren't uh, as easy to, to recognize, but they tend to be a little bit more insecure and defensive and introverted. They tend to have lower self-esteem. One of the main things that kind of links these things together, these two types of narcissism together, is something we call self-enhancement. And that's a key quality of narcissists. And self-enhancement is just, we tend to... Uh, brag or puff ourselves up in a way to kind of make ourselves feel better. For the grandiose narcissists, they tend to be very extroverted with with their type of narcissists. And vulnerable narcissists do it slightly differently. They're kind of what I like to call Instagram narcissists, where they have, uh, at at least currently, um, a lot of people will go on something like Instagram and have this very carefully curated uh, public perception that they're putting out there. you know, they take it takes them 20 times to get the perfect picture to post on Instagram because they want to put this this not necessarily false, but maybe exaggerated um, perception of who they are as a person and how their life is going. And the difference between these is uh, when it comes to something like criticism, a grandiose narcissist, if they get criticized, they're more likely to be aggressive and get kind of angry about that. And a vulnerable narcissist is more likely to take that personally and be kind of hurt. That sounds like a lot of people who are on Instagram. Yeah, definitely. I had never heard about a vulnerable narcissist, but when he was talking, I could identify a few people that I knew that fit the criteria. Um, but yeah, so like I said earlier, we often hear about how narcissism affects those around us. Right. But uh, Shane Luttrell, the researcher, he just wanted to find out about how narcissism, narcissism affects people internally and their thought processes. Okay. So he told me a little bit about how he conducted the study. So I wanted to see if... Narcissists, their what seems to be biased expressions of their thinking actually were related to the cognitive processes going on. Uh, so I gave them five different measures of uh, various types of uh, cognitive reflection or things that are related to cognitive thinking, uh, like something called the uh, cognitive reflection test, um, the CRT, which is basically a collection of brain teasers um, that ask things like, the, the classic example is about a burger and fries. Or it's, it's about a bat and ball, but I give them burger and fries because it's just tastier. But uh, burger and fries cost $1.10. Uh, the burger costs a dollar more than the fries. How much do the fries cost? And uh, the intuitive answer for that, because all of these have intuitive answers that are wrong, and it requires you to actually think about the problem to get the correct answer. The intuitive answer for that is like, oh, well, if it's a dollar more, then it's obviously a do- uh, 10 cents. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually right. It's actually a dollar five. Mm-hmm. 
And an, another example is uh, there's a hole that, uh, how much dirt is in a hole that's three feet deep by three feet wide um, by three, three feet across? And most people intuitively will just look at that and be like, oh, three times three times three is 27. But you have to stop and reflect on that and say, oh, wait, it's a hole. There's no dirt in the hole. <laughs> so I gave uh, everybody that test and along with several others. And the people that were higher in narcissism tended to do worse on uh, measures of that type of reflective thinking. Okay. Can we go back? And, like, I, I, I get <laughs> the whole one because that's funny. That's, that's funny. Fun. It's almost like a riddle. Yeah. But the first one. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe by his research, I'm a narcissist because I had a really hard time getting some of these questions. Like, I didn't get the right answer. When I was doing them quickly in my head while he was saying it, I was like, 27, Shane, come on. And then I was like, oh, no, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> but, I'm going to uh, have to go back and think about those ones Those as are well. just some of the examples that he okay. gave people that identified Phew. that had narcissistic personality traits. So as you just heard, people with uh, these personality traits that are narcissistic person- personality traits did poorly on the test we just mentioned. So what does that mean in regards to critical and reflective thinking? Well, that basically suggested uh, mixed with their overconfidence, uh, narcissists seem like they are more likely to uh, not engage in these reflective strategies when they solve problems. And I mean this very broadly across vulnerable and, and grandiose. They tend to not use these reflective strategies and are more likely to go with, uh, possibly go with the first answer that pops into their mind. Because the first answer comes with a sense of confidence. You know, a lot of times we get a gut feeling and we feel really confident in that gut feeling even if it's wrong, uh, this at least suggests that narcissists, due to their overconfidence perhaps, get that gut feeling and are even more confident in their gut feelings than than, uh, non-narcissists and are more likely to go with that rather than engaging in these more reflective, more critical processes to try to come up with a a better solution to the problems. So it at least suggests that in a lot of these decisions in their lives that will normally would require more critical thought. They just don't engage in those critical processes and we'll just go with the quick answer. Okay. So there's kind of good and bad news for us mm-hmm. in there because we did go with the quick answer, but then we beat ourselves up afterwards about how did that happen? Like, why did we do that? Mm-hmm. And maybe narcissists wouldn't do that. Right. Exactly. And so uh, remember when Shane spoke about the two different kinds of narcissists, the grandiose and the vulnerable, um, he says that there's a slight difference between the two when it comes to the outcome of critical and re- reflective thinking. The vulnerable narcissist, but not the grandiose, seems to perceive their own thinking about their own thinking, this engaging in, in reflective thinking, they were more likely to report that they do it than the grandiose narcissists, but they were also more likely to report that it was really a, a confusing and kind of, you know, well, just a confusing process for them. That suggests perhaps the vulnerable narcissists, unlike the grandiose, start to engage in these critical processes. And then because vulnerable narcissists are more, you know, they're hypersensitive, and uh, more, a little bit more neurotic, they might start to doubt the answers that they come up with or doubt whether or not those critical processes are even good. So they'll default back to that gut response. That is so fascinating. Yeah, really interesting about how the vulnerable narcissist almost gets there or may actually get to the right answer. But then because of their insecurity, defaults back to the impulsive answer right away. 
So, okay. Yeah, very interesting. So um, Shane st- uh, told me that what's really sets this study apart from other studies on narcissism, because there are other studies right. about this personality trait, is that it actually looks at, a pa- at patterns of thoughts instead of just outward behavior. Well, they're having these these thoughts, these self-enhancing thoughts that are related to their ego, but maybe it's not just a self-enhancing kind of thing. Maybe it's actual distortion in their ability to reason, which hasn't really been looked at much in the literature. Oh, boy, this is really interesting. So their brain's just wired in a different way. And so I just thought that was so interesting because... We always hear about how, you know, narcissists, when they get into relationships, they ruin relationships or people are just on their, their partners to live with. Yeah, is not satisfied with living with them or with their how the relationship has panned out. But now we're actually learning that maybe their brains are just wired differently in regards to critical and reflective thinking. And so Shane actually has a follow-up study, which will uh, dig deeper into the thought processes of narcissists. And it will look at whether or not narcissists are able to use effective logical reasoning. Um, So that's what he'll be working on next. And I just think it's such a fascinating topic. Maybe, yeah, you're right. Maybe they're not capable of going through the steps like of, as a coping mechanism. Right. And what a question I asked Shane that he was not really able to answer because he's a cognitive, he works in the area of cognitive psychology, is that we hear a lot about, um, especially in relationships with narcissists, people seek out therapy to understand, to maybe work on their issues that they're having in a relationship, if there's a narcissist in a relationship with their partner. And so I was wondering if therapy would actually work for a narcissist, if their brain isn't able to do a flex- yeah. reflective um, or critical thinking, because if it they just, can't go to therapy and gain anything from it, then what's going to work? Exactly. That's what I was wondering is that how would you be able to get through to somebody whose brain just doesn't, doesn't process things that way? Cause re- therapy is all about reflection, right? And especially with relationship therapy. So I was just wondering like, if you're in a relationship with a narcissist, is there no cure? No hope. No hope. No cure. For, well, there's hope, I'm there's sure. Hope. It's just what you can live with and what they can Exactly. So modify. maybe I think it's just an interesting way to learn yeah. more about the brain of somebody that has narcissistic personality traits. So fascinating. Claire, thank you. Thanks, Amy. And we'll have more when we come back. Now, I love a good podcast to keep me company as I go about doing my stuff at home. And do we have a good one to talk about right now? We all have our challenges that we deal with every day, but it's not often that we hear somebody just talk about them in such an open and honest way so that we can all learn a little something. And that's what you learn when you listen to When Life Gives You Parkinson's. And season two is launching today. The host, of course, is Larry Gifford. He's joined us before. He joins us now to talk as well about season two. And this is where he delves deeper into the issue of dealing with his Parkinson's, which is a degenerative disorder that does not have a cure, what it's like to be a husband, dad, being at work with all of that. And Larry is with us now to talk more about season two. Larry, hi. Hi, Simi. How are you doing? I'm great. It's a, it's a great day to uh, be a podcaster. Okay, so we're talking about the season two kickoff of When Life Gives You Parkinson's. What are you exploring in season two? Well, you know, season one was really about sort of my coming to grips with the fact that I had a diagnosis and trying to figure out how to deal with it. And season two is about uh, moving forward and, and really taking control of it and being an advocate for Parkinson's. Do you think, does that kind of go with the arc of your adjustment to this? Like, are we kind of moving with you as you have moved to the stages of dealing with your diagnosis? Oh, for sure. Yeah, this is uh, really, uh, 
it's, it reflects my journey uh, 100%, but it also reflects the journey of many others I meet along the way. So it's not just my story. Uh, it's the stories of people I meet along the way. And, 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 and I think cumulatively, uh, storytelling can really have a, a huge impact uh, on a community and, and in the way that we're treated as people with Parkinson's by the medical community. Okay, and, and what is that like? Like, how are people with Parkinson's treated in the medical community? Well, uh, you know, I, uh, there's going to be an episode later this year, How to Fire Your Neurologist and How to Fire Your General Practitioner. Really? Uh, because, oh yeah, because uh, you hear horror stories about, I'm going to fire my GP, by the way. Uh, I, I showed up and she didn't know what dyskinesia was and she didn't really realize that uh, I was uh, that tremors just don't go away. They're masked by medicine. And uh, so if she's not interested in learning about my Parkinson's, I'm going to go to somebody who will. Uh, and it's really empowering patients to take control of their own health care. That is so interesting, Larry, because, you know, that goes beyond having Parkinson's, doesn't it? Because I'm sure a lot of people have medical issues that they feel they have trouble talking about with their doctor. For sure. And like, well, listen, if they're, if they're not willing to give you the time and not take you seriously, go to somebody who will. I, I had somebody who was misdiagnosed with Parkinson's. Uh, they were then diagnosed with multiple system atrophy, which is the deadly version of Parkinson's. And they weren't told that it was a deadly disease. Wow. They, How- left, the off- they, left, the, they left the office not knowing they were terminal. I'm speechless when I hear that because you're right. We we assume that doctors know all. So how do you have that conversation? Well, I mean, it's hard, but you have to be assertive. You have to go. You have to prepare for every doctor's appointment. You have to know exactly what you want to get out, what you want to communicate. Oftentimes, you can email it ahead of time and then have a copy for them when you're there, so they know that you have an agenda. Right. You said you have to take charge of your own health on this. You know, for sure. I think everybody does. I mean, it's not just people that are sick. It's even if you're healthy, like if you're going to the doctor, have a, you know, know the intention that listen, uh, Parkinson's Canada is going to be releasing a new uh, update to their, uh, to their Parkinson's guidelines for the medical community later this month. And it's, it's genius. And it tells doctors what they need to look out for and how they can help people with Parkinson's because nobody's, listen, there's, there's a million different things they could, they could research. And not everybody's as interested in Parkinson's as I am. I get that. Uh, But if you've got a patient that has it, you should know how to treat it. Right. And the other thing, what I love about your podcast as well is it's the journey of your family. It's of your wife, Rebecca, your son, Henry, because it's, you're not the only one who is dealing with this, right? All of your family members are dealing with this as well. What's that like? Yeah, we kind of all got the diagnosis at once. It's, you know, it's, it's day-to-day just like the diseases. I mean, there are some days where we're figuring it out in a really positive way. And there's other days like Rebecca and I have always been great communicators with each other. And there's some days where we cannot understand what the other is saying. Like I'll say something and she'll misinterpret it. She'll say something and I'll misinterpret it. And that's part of the disease. Like I, I just, I have trouble comprehending things. It, uh, Henry is 10 now and he's trying to figure it out. Like we had a conversation on the podcast uh, that came out today. And I said, uh, have you noticed anything about daddy's personality? And uh, he goes, uh, well, not really. I'm like, I don't get uh, you know, quick temper. He goes, oh yeah, you do. <laughs> and that just so, doesn't sound like you, you, Larry. So you're saying like you're, you're, and people, I hear about this with stroke patients. This happened with my dad after he had a stroke, his personality completely changed. He is also diagnosed with Parkinson's. So are you scared of that personality change? For sure. And, and you know, 
usually they associate personality change and aggressive behavior with sort of late stage and dementia. Yeah. Uh, and for, for me, and talking to other people with Parkinson's, spouses and, and like people who live with you notice it most, um, but it's not uncommon. Uh, and it, it's, it's just part of the disease progression where you just sort of, you're not as patient with things because you're, you're, you're yeah. constantly in, you know, I say I'm constantly in battle with the disease and my wife goes, you just need to embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> Easier said than done, right? Sometimes. Yeah. How have you noticed the progression in you? What can you do? What, what can't you do now versus say a year ago? Well, I can't sleep. <laughs> so sleep is a precious commodity. Um, I am now acting out my dreams at night, uh, so uh, it, which is bad because they get very violent. Uh, people with Parkinson's oftentimes have very vivid, violent dreams. So we're um, punching people and punching my nightstand, and then sometimes I get really close to punching my wife uh, by accident, uh, in bed, like not knowing what we're doing. So we actually went shopping for single beds and we'll bring that to the podcast this, this year. Um, and, and then like at work, you, you don't may not know it, but like, I sometimes have to close my door and turn off the lights and just take a breather because I, I don't have the energy and I'm just totally fatigued. Yeah. I could see that happening. And you know what? You're going to be telling some really interesting stories on this season of the podcast. I look forward to hearing them. So, Larry, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Emmy. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. That's Larry Gifford. He is the host of When Life Gives You Parkinson's and a very familiar voice as well to CKW listeners out there because he's the boss here and we tell these stories. And that is so compelling, the things that he talks about there, right? Because if you know somebody with any kind of degenerative illness, then you're, you may know them, but do you really know of the day-to-day struggles and the changes that make that up, make what that happens to them? And that's what season two of When Life Gives You Parkinson's is all about. It is available today. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Google Podcasts, Apple, Spotify, wherever. Just check it out.